Good morning and welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I'm Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. It is day 522 of our three-year journey through God's Word. Acts 23 is on tap before us, and I'm feeling much better. And so excited to dig into God's Word with you today. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us and for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the gift of your word, for the privilege and the blessing it is for us to gather together each day to study your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would write your word on our hearts, that you would show us more of Jesus, that you would draw our hearts to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 23. This is Paul on trial because of the uproar in Jerusalem. Uh, he's now looking at the, the council. The Sanhedrin's been summoned uh, before the uh, the, um, the tribune, the Roman tribune, who's in charge of the legion that's been assigned to keep the peace. And so Paul is on trial here. <clears throat> and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, There is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but Pharisees acknowledge them all. There is a great, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night... The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves with an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine the case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, 
take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush to kill him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts for Paul to ride, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to their barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. That's Acts chapter 23. So here's Paul beginning his long imprisonment is really what's happening here. So um, I probably should have read the end of 22. Sometimes I do that when the chapter breaks seem odd, but um, picking up from where we were last in 22, you know, there's been this whole uproar and he gave a speech to the crowd and uh, the crowd, as soon as he mentioned that he was being sent to the Gentiles, you know, they rose up and tried to destroy him and the, the tribune had to bring Paul inside and keep him safe. But he still didn't understand. Like, the tribune is still really confused as to what in the world is going on with this guy. Because from the tribune's perspective, like, this guy's just talking nonsense, really. I mean, he's one of these secular, sophisticated Roman people. He understands rule. He understands authority. He understands the Roman law code. He understands order and discipline. He also understands citizenship and citizenship rights. Because we know that he told Paul that he had paid a, a large sum of money for his citizenship. So he, he would have known all the rights that come with citizenship. Because if you're going to spend a large sum of money to purchase something for yourself, you're going to know what you're buying, what you're investing in. 
And so he knew what the rights of a Roman citizen were. And once he knew that Paul was a Roman citizen, he was going to safeguard those rights. And so here he's, he's trying to figure out still what in the world do the Jews have? And so, and so the Sanhedrin meets and uh, that's the chief priests and all the council. That's the full council of the Sanhedrin, the 70 rulers of the Jews. This would be the same body that put Jesus on trial, the same body that would have uh, had trials of Peter and John before them uh, prior to this. And so he goes, he goes from um, the, the, the dungeon prison, the, the guardhouse uh, where uh, he was being kept. And then he was brought over to where the Sanhedrin meets, which is sort of a reverse of what happened to Jesus. Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin and then taken to where Herod was. Um, so here he's taken from the Roman uh, prison building and, and administrative ruling building and then taken over to where the Sanhedrin meet. And it's before the Sanhedrin that he's then put on trial. And I'm sorry, that was my son. I'm not sure why he did that. Um, who knows? Okay. Uh, I don't have little kids either, like Mike. But sometimes my big kids will make outbursts for no particular reason. Okay. So anyway, we're about to... <laughs> um, so this is a trial before the Sanhedrin. And this trial really doesn't go very well. Um, it, it starts off really badly at the very beginning because Paul's trying to make his case and literally the very first sentence that comes out of his mouth, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. This is like just the introduction to his apologia, his defense that he's going to give before the council. And he, he barely gets the introductory statement out of his mouth when he's struck on the mouth. It's like, the world like this is nowhere near a fair trial this is some sort of ridiculousness and so he cries out god's gonna strike you you whitewashed wall you're you're sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck now he's exactly right in what he says there is this blatant hypocrisy here before the sanhedrin the sanhedrin is the ruling council the 70 elders their task is to administer the law the law of Moses applied to his particular case. Well, he has to have facts, right? They have to know what he's being accused of and whether there's any evidence to support it and what law of Moses it would be a violation of. They don't bother with any of that. They just strike him on the mouth as soon as he tries to say anything good about himself, to defend himself. And so he's rebuked. You know, you're speaking... You're reviling God's high priest. And, and Paul immediately apologizes. He says, I know that it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I know that's in the word of God. So I'm going to apologize. I'm sorry. I did not know. I wouldn't have said that if I had known. And then he's stuck. Because what's he going to do? This body of people has condemned the Lord Jesus has arrested and put on trial Peter and John on multiple occasions. They have persecuted the Christians in Jerusalem with his help. He helped with all that. So, you know, he was a he was a not a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was part of their sort of circle of people. He might have been one of those people like was ordered to strike him, right? The people people who stood by him, strike him on the mouth. Those aren't necessarily members of the Sanhedrin, but they're people who are 
sort of the Sanhedrin's disciples and the people who hang around the Sanhedrin. That's exactly who Paul was just a few years prior to this. So he, like, he knows a lot of these people. And he knows what they think about Christians because he used to have that same opinion. He knows what they think about Jesus of Nazareth. He knows that they've heard from Stephen, the martyr, whom they condemned to death and stoned to death while Paul held the coats. He knows what they thought of Peter and John, whom they beat and commanded never to speak in this name again. So I think he knows he's just not going to get anywhere with this group. And so he thinks, and thinking on his feet, he decides he's going to play the Pharisee card. He is a Pharisee, that's the way he's been raised, and there are distinctions between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in angels or demons or the resurrection of the dead or most of the Hebrew Bible. They only have the five books of the Torah and a little goofy memory device to how to remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the Sadducees don't believe in any of those things. They don't believe in angels or demons or most of God's word or the resurrection of the dead. And that's why they were sad, you see. It's goofy. It's a bad pun. But it's a good memory device to help you remember, oh, they're the ones who didn't believe in these supernatural things and they didn't really accept all of God's word. And that's why they were sad, you see. But they were the ones who ruled in Jerusalem because they were the ones who had close ties. The high priest's family, Ananias and all of his family members, they were, they were Sadducees, and they had close alliances with Rome. Now, several years after this trial of Paul, in AD 68, there's going to be a, a Jewish uprising, and in AD 70, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Once the Romans destroy the temple, and crush the Jewish people in AD 70, the power of the Sadducees is completely broken. And so the Pharisees are the ones who get to write the Talmud in Babylon. And the Babylonian, the Babylonian Talmud that gets published around 200 AD, that is modern Orthodox Judaism. So if you've ever wondered, how do modern Orthodox Jews relate to the people, Sadducees and Pharisees. Well, basically they are Pharisees. They are those who, you know, Paul's rabbi that he learned under when he was a Jewish scholar coming up was Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the most famed, most esteemed Jewish rabbi in the Pharisee school. And most of modern Orthodox Judaism still holds Gamaliel as just a very high-ranking, highly esteemed person. Nicodemus was another prominent Pharisee. So modern Orthodox Judaism is kind of Phariseeism, but it's not the Phariseeism that was there in the New Testament times in Jesus' day. It's the Phariseeism that was codified in what's called the Babylonian Talmud, which is a 20-volume commentary on the Old Testament scriptures that was compiled in Babylon around 200 A.D., and so that's a very different kind of thinking. But basically, they're in the same uh, school of thought as the Pharisees. The Pharisees won that trial. So what am I, why am I saying all this? Uh, probably wasting a lot of time. But really, my point here is that Paul thinks his best move here is to play the Pharisee card. Now, he later admits, when he's on trial before Felix the governor, he later admits 
that this wasn't really a good thing for him to do. This wasn't really a righteous thing for him to do. This was a politically calculated move of how to get out of this tight spot. It's totally understandable why he would do it, but it's not necessarily the best show for him because he's basically trying to play the two parties against each other and find some way that he can get out of this bad situation because, I mean, he was an eyewitness to Stephen's stoning and he could kind of sense that that's where things were going with him and he'd rather not be stoned to death outside of Jerusalem like Stephen. That's human nature. That's perfectly reasonable. So we can understand why he did what he did. But later in Acts, we'll see that when he's on trial before Felix, he's going to admit that that wasn't really a great thing for him to do. So the Lord stood by him that night when he's taken back to the barracks and says, Take courage, for you have testified to me to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now that's got to be in the back of Paul's mind as he spends the next couple of years in Caesarea. And he will eventually, he's going, actually not that long from now, he's going to appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he has a right to appeal his case to Caesar. That's kind of like an American citizen having the right to appeal their case to the Supreme Court. It's not a guarantee that you're going to be seen by Caesar, but you have a right to make your appeal. And then Caesar will consider, really Caesar's, you know, administration will consider whether or not they're going to hear the facts of your case. Now, Paul will end up testifying before Caesar because this issue of these Christians and who they are and how they relate to Jews because they claim to worship the same God as the Jews and yet the Jews reject them and don't accept them as part of their... This becomes enough of an issue that the Caesar, who was Nero, uh, by the time Paul ends up there, he wants to know, like, what's going on here? Who are these people? Now, what's interesting is that when Paul and Peter both end up before Nero and Nero learns more about these Christians and how hated they are, uh, even by the Jews who are the hated people within the Roman Empire. So in the Roman Empire, you had, you know, the Romans, citizens, and then you had the non-Roman citizens. And then the Jews were kind of hated because they wouldn't worship anybody else's gods but their own. That was considered to be arrogant and narrow-minded. And then below that were the Christians. They were the scum of the earth who were rejected even by the Jews. And so once Nero sort of learns about that, he realizes he's got a convenient scapegoat for who to blame for the burning of Rome, which is how Peter and Paul are going to end up being executed, and Andrew as well, under Emperor Nero. But at this point in time, none of that's happened yet, and so obviously. Uh, and so Paul is, he's, he's in prison. And this Roman tribune, still has no idea what in the world's going on. He just knows that this Paul is like a powder keg. But he hasn't heard Paul say anything that rises to powder keg level. You know, um, to, to, to us, I'm trying to think of an analogy like, okay, the joke is that in some parts of the South, right, college football is the national religion. So if you were in the state of Alabama and you heard some people say, oh, go Auburn, and the other people said, oh, go Alabama, and then you saw them like getting ready to kill each other over it. You'd be like, what is this Auburn and Alabama thing? This may be something, I think it's just college football, but it's got to be something more than that because why would they be willing, willing to kill someone over this ridiculous nonsense? That's got to be the way the Tribune is thinking. He's got to be thinking, this can't just be about some guy named Jesus that was crucified and Paul says rose from the dead. That's just a religious dispute, and people don't kill each other over religious disputes. That's just silly nonsense. There's got to be something else. And so he's trying to figure it out. But even as he's trying to figure it out, 
Of course, those who want Paul dead are deadly serious about it because they know that Jesus, if he is Lord, and if he did rise from the dead, and if he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then they are wrong. They're the ones who crucified him. They're the ones who condemned him to death. The one who was the Son of God and the promised Messiah. So they have to get rid of him. They absolutely have to get rid of him because he's the one person who could completely overthrow everything they have. That's why they crucified him in the first place, and now it's why they have to extinguish Christianity, whatever they can do. So they take an oath and a vow that they're not going to eat any food until they've killed him. By God's providence, Paul's niece, nephew, sorry, I see sister, I said niece, Paul's nephew, the son of Paul's sister, hears of this, and Paul's nephew goes and tells the centurion, who then tells the tribute, and he is goes and sends him to the governor. They march from Jerusalem towards Caesarea, which is which is a pretty good way. Um, you know, it's about a seventy mile march, which is not any sort of a joke in terms of a distance to cover uh, in a single night. They actually get about a little more than halfway there. They get to uh, Antipros, and um, once they get there, then the next day he's uh, he's he's all the way there. So Antip Antipatris is 35 miles from Jerusalem, and then uh, Caesarea is 62 miles or 100 kilometers. So they've gone about 56 of the 100, and then they go the rest of the 100 the next day. It's, it's a difficult um, distance, but you have all these 200 soldiers. Um, the horsemen are the ones who accompany him all the way to Caesarea, and he gets to Caesarea. And Paul's going to spend the next two and a half years of his life in Caesarea, in prison, in Herod's Praetorium. When we were in Israel, it was one of the highlights of the trip for me, is you can go to Caesarea, you can go to Herod's palace, you can stand in the very place where Paul makes his defense there, and you can also walk right past the place where they are right now excavating the prisons where Paul would have been kept. So it's really cool to go there and see that. Um, but Paul's going to be on, on trial here, and chapters 24 to 26 are some of my favorite chapters because you hear a much better defense from Paul. Frankly, the defense he gives before the Sanhedrin is not that great. And the reason why it's not that great is he knows from the get-go he's not going to get a fair hearing. When he thinks he has any reasonable chance of a fair hearing before Felix and then before um, before um, Herod Agrippa, King Agrippa, and Bernice, uh, he does a much better job because he's more prepared to make it a defense, and he also has someone who's willing to listen to him. So these are really great chapters that we're going to get ready to embark on here in Acts, but that's all the time we have for today. In fact, I've run pretty much way over time. I apologize for that. I am feeling better for <laughs> first time in a couple of days, so let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing that it is to us. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his life. Thank you for the ways that you worked through him, the truth that you spread through him. You used him in so many different ways to bring the gospel to different audiences, including being unjustly imprisoned by chains. Help us to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel wherever you put us, whatever means you give us, whether that be open or, or forced or whatever, whatever platform we've been given, may we use it to proclaim Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear about him, just as they did in the days of Paul. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for joining me for Acts 23. Tomorrow we are back 
to 1 Chronicles, next two days, 1 Chronicles chapters 3 and 4. Hope you'll join me for that as always. Have a blessed day in the Lord.